and welcome to the Guelph Politicast. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico. Today I talked to Sarah Said, the Senior Advisor of Equity, Anti-Racism, and Indigenous Initiatives at the City of Guelph. With all things COVID back on the front burner, it is easy to temporarily forget everything that's happened in the last few years around fighting systemic racism and embracing social justice. But Said's hiring at the city is one of the benchmarks, a signal that our local government was taking the efforts to make a more equitable and representative system seriously. Of course, progress never moves fast enough, so let's leave it to the person who knows best. Is the city of Guelph making real progress on tackling issues of systemic racism? That is the topic of this week's Guelph Politicast. So let's set the table with this Wikipedia entry. Institutional racism, also known as systemic racism, is a form of racism that is embedded in the laws and regulations of a society or an organization. It manifests as discrimination in areas such as criminal justice, employment, housing, healthcare, education, and political representation. In other words, it's everywhere. That is an uncomfortable thought. No one wants to think that they're racist or a participant in a racist system. But this is the essential quandary of our times because saying the words or committing violence against people who are different is the most extreme edge of what it means to live in a racist system. Eliminating the systemic racism is the hardest part. For a job this big, you need someone plugged into the community, someone that's dedicated themselves to the cause and become a trusted local leader. And it's hard to think of someone in Guelph better suited for that job than Sarah Sayed. She's been the community services director and a spokesperson for the Guelph Muslim Society. And she served on a number of local boards, including the Guelph General Hospital Board, the Guelph Community Foundation, and the Guelph Wellington Local Immigration Partnership Leadership Council. She's had her finger in a lot of proverbial pies, which is why she was able to hit the ground running since getting hired by the city of Guelph last summer. Already, an update to the community plan is in progress, but in this election year, is there a way that we can also make fighting systemic racism a campaign issue? That's one of the questions we will put to Sarah Said on this edition of the Guelph Politicast. We will talk about what systemic racism looks like in Guelph, whether the city of Guelph is keeping up with the pace of demand for change and how things have improved since these discussions took priority after the Black Lives Matter protest in 2020. We will also talk about the 2022 municipal election, getting more people of color into local politics and running for office, and what actions are currently in progress at the city in terms of enhancing equity. And finally, we will discuss issues of trust, the importance of having uncomfortable conversations, and how Saeed has made the transition from being a community activist to being part of the proverbial machine. So I caught up with Sarah Saeed last month via Zoom. So uh, Sarah Saeed, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. To begin with, I thought I'd kind of like break it down or break these issues that you're dealing with down to sort of like the most fundamental levels. And and the best way I can think about that is for people who may not understand sort of some of the issues you're combating as it stands, like whether right this moment or whether we're talking about a couple of years ago when we started really seriously talking about these things, how is interacting with the city different for me as a middle-aged white man, as opposed to 
someone like you or another person of color in Guelph? I mean, what are the differences in terms of that interaction are, are we looking at fundamentally? Um, I think in the most basic sense, um, walking into an office or picking up the phone and making a phone call, there is no uh, language barrier. You have probably grown up um, here in Canada, so you probably had a grade five, six unit on civics and uh, municipal government and probably another one in grade 10. You probably have um, a better concept of what uh, what you would talk about at a municipal level versus where you would end up for, you know, having to get the services of an MPP versus an MP because you mm. would have that kind of education and background. Um, for somebody who is a newcomer or an immigrant, that might be a little bit more difficult. And then for somebody who may be Indigenous um, or coming from a uh, Black community, there is a fundamental issue of trust. Mm -hmm. um, historically, there have been, you know, the government is not working in the favor of Indigenous communities or Black communities. And so walking into a municipal government or the mayor's office or a city hall would be maybe a last effort at getting the assistance they need. They may have tried multiple avenues already to see how they could figure things out. So those would be very broad and general issues that people would be dealing with on an everyday level. And putting it in those terms, I mean, we always struggle with th these ideas that um, like one particular minority community is not homogenous. They all have different concerns. And I mean, this is shows the full scope of, of the issues you're dealing with, whether it's just like people not understanding the system, which is kind of on the low end, because you can sort of educate people, well, this is what a city councilor does, this is what an MPP does, this is what an MP does. And on the other end, like having to unwind issues of trust and, and inviting people to take part in the process, which is a great deal harder because everybody has specific personalized reasons that they don't trust the system. Yeah, precisely. Everybody has a different lived experience. So what that issue of trust is, what that uh, issue in the past has been or where they have faced a barrier would be very different for everybody. And so it may be accessibility, it may be language, it may be uh, last time I came in here, people just were looking at me very suspiciously and I felt very uncomfortable. Um, so it could be a whole array of um, issues and barriers that people face and, and we have to tackle those one at a time. Right. And this gets into sort of the, the difficulties in, in your job and you know, the job of everybody at City Hall who's trying to take on these challenges, because there are a lot of people who hear the term systemic racism and go, well, hold on, I'm not racist. Like, I'm, I'm part of the system. I'm not racist. Like, what? Are, how dare you? That There's, there's that kind of uh, feeling. But I mean, when you're someone who either doesn't trust the system or someone who doesn't come with much knowledge of the system and you walk into somewhere, I mean, and you encounter this in all walks of life. You enter a new environment and you're sort of like out of your depth. The people who are used to that environment um, do make summary judgments about you, no matter like what the situation is. Yeah, for sure. I mean, for me, I, the first time I joined a board and walked into a boardroom, wow, like that was an experience. I was completely like not even 
treading water on that that day and it was very very overwhelming but you you know once you get your grounding or your bearings then you work through it but um yeah when you talk about uh, uh systemic racism versus i'm not racist i think we when we talk about individuals we have to really um make a point about saying that it's not about you being racist, but that everybody mm. comes with these built-in biases. Right. And those biases are based on your own lived experience and how you uh, were raised or the environment in which you were raised. I mean, if you come from a very secure middle-income family and were able to go to school and had a good experience and had access to higher education, sometimes it's very hard to wrap your head around something like homelessness. Right. You know, it's just you, you just can't get it no matter how much is explained to you because it's not your lived experience. So that's very different than systemic racism, where policies or systems are built, not even necessarily to work against you, but not in your favor. Mm -hmm. And so those are two very separate issues that we have to talk about. So when we talk about a person coming in, we have to first address to make sure you're checking your biases and assumptions about a person. Um, and then the second thing we have to address is really looking at the policies and how we change, whether it's, you know, is it the system of counsel? Is it the ward system? Is it, mm. you know, other policies that we have to dig into, zoning, bylaw, parks, it could be anything at all, so. And some of these are pretty obvious. Like I, I was reading over the, the report that you helped put together for council. And one of the things is, translators um having people who uh, around who in customer service positions who speak the language and this is something we saw during the vaccine rollout um and i know that i think it was the immigration partnership uh helped coordinate with public health to get people who speak uh the different languages of, of guelph residents to, to sort of educate the community about vaccines but i mean that is something that is so simple um that when you read it in a report and go ah yes that we should have that, but then you don't really think about it until it's in a report. Yeah, I mean, with that example specifically, waiting for the provincial government to finish with their translations was just too long, even if it was taking a week or four days because the information was changing so quickly. Yeah. But Immigrant Services and Public Health Guelph, uh, you know, Wellington Deaf and Guelph Public Health did an amazing job um, to be right on top of that Um almost day-to-day -day changes and day-to-day -day translations then being updated with that. So that was very imperative to get that information out. Mm -hmm. So translations is, is kind of one example, like speaking the language. Um, can you talk a bit about sort of where systemic racism kind of emerges in like actual interactions? You know, it's one thing to say like the system itself um, sort of yields towards certain biases, but I mean, how does that translate into like literal interactions that people encounter every day with the city? Um, our city has been doing a really good job of having a translation service available for different languages. But when you talk about systemic barriers, I'll give you one example mm -hmm. is that we're looking to, you know, how's the best way to get a web page completely translated mm -hmm. and when you talk about so a lot of you know corporations companies organizations they just have that little google translate button up in the top corner you hit it and you get a language and people think hey that's the best way why do we have to spend any money at all on this at all 
Right. But when you talk about the actual quality of translation, yeah. Google Translate is great for your European languages, mm -hmm. English, French, Spanish, Italian. Mm -hmm. You'll get accurate translations. You talk about Tigrina, Arabic, Vietnamese, Mandarin. Those translations are not accurate at all. I mean, even your French teacher will say, don't use Google Translate, right? Yeah. But you still get a fairly <laughs> decent translation in French. But when you're talking about other languages, there's contexts and, and nuances to languages which you just cannot get translated. And especially where you're talking about languages that have a completely different alphabet, right. um, it's you cannot get those translations. So that's a systemic issue is why are the translations for some languages so good and accurate, whereas others are not. And those are the ones you generally need most. Right, because oh. who, who, who's coming into our community or as, as newcomers? It's people from China and Vietnam and the Middle East and Southeast Asia. And so those are the people who sort of need that translation help the most. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting and terrible to sort of boil these down into like sort of because you're talking about again we're talking about on multiple levels it's a systematic thing but it's also uh an individualistic thing and you talked about like knocking down knocking the system down one at a time one thing at a time and you come out into the greater community and we see all you know people gathering and we see uh different community events are trying to talk to this uh, to these issues and the focus is on the system itself. So I guess, do you feel like, given your position now, um, are you able to move fast enough to knock that system down at a pace that, you know, members of the community want? Like, do you have that comfort? Yeah, if, if you go through the new community plan language, there is one section called pace and urgency. <laughs> and this is what we're talking about. It's the pace of the, the you know, it's a, at sometimes it's a glacial pace that we're moving at, mm -hmm. but there's no other way to move that. But we need to recognize that there has to be this urgency. There's an underlying urgency that we can't wait for more people to die, for right. more people to, whether it's, you know, through brutality, whether it's through drug overdose, whether it's because of homelessness, like people are dying because of these issues. And we right. have to recognize that. It's not something that yeah we'll work at it so there is urgency but then understanding that there's all of this this is the way we've always done it bureaucracy this is the red tape this is the systems that has to get through so you know figuring out how do we speed up those systems how do we knock down um it was i can't remember who said it but the person um it was one of those you know great the speakers you see on LinkedIn, they have right. like mass followings. But <laughs> is that if the policy is not working, then you need to change the policy. Right. Right. So it's not about changing the people or changing your approach. It's the policy that's broken. So we need to see and figure out like which are the policies that are broken and, and what can we do to, to change those. Right. Because and I, I've had conversations to this effect before. You know, sort of Group communities of interest, you know, whether we're talking about Guelph Muslim Society, Guelph Black Heritage, you know, th there are very active and engaged communities uh, for different minority groups in the city, even like, you know, in unofficial capacities, just people who are from, 
who have the same background or, you know, the same experiences. These are active community groups, but they're, they do hit a wall because, and I, and I've said this to, again, to people in conversation before uh, talking about sort of the systemic barriers when someone of when a person of color shows up to delegate at council, that is immediately noticeable because you don't get that too terribly often. There is something in our active community, whether it's conscious or not, that says this is not a, an arena for people of color. And it's not because I don't think council wants doesn't want to hear from people of color. I think they do. But there's something there's something in I don't know, the water in the air, whatever it is, that's that that there's a door between that community and the council chambers. I mean, when they're when we're physically in the council chambers. And that is I think that's proof of what you're talking getting at. Like the system has to change. Yeah, I think municipal system has always been looked at as being uh, you know, roads, infrastructure, what does it have to do with gender and race and ethnicity right. and, and all of these things. So now that those those links are being made and the studies are being put out there and saying that, hey, your recreation space has a huge effect on a certain number of people or certain groups of people and negative effects on other people if they're not done right. And those delegations of color or racialized communities are showing up and saying, you know, we demand better then people are saying, oh, wait, there is a connection, mm -hmm. which they never really considered before. Um, if you're talking about buses being rerouted, people are really understanding now. Uh, when we talk about active transportation, you can't just say, um, hey, if we do A, B, and C, people will automatically take the bus and everything will be great, or let's just reroute the bus through here. And not a big, you have to realize that there is going to be effects and how do we mitigate those effects. And so all of those things, when people are making those connections and saying, hey, each one of these municipal issues that we thought was just infrastructure or fixing a road actually do have adverse effects on various communities that we never thought about before. Right. Then um, I think it makes a huge, huge realization, and everybody kind of says, "Oh, wait, we have to look at a broader picture of things." Right, because you know, when talking about active transportation, just to pick that one issue out of the air, a lot of that is kind of centralized in the core because that's where a lot of the users are, or rather, by design, that's kind of where a lot of the users are because there's a lot of really great trail accessibility in the central part of the city. However, that may not mean much to other communities like the, you know, and I, and I, I don't mean to sort of identify areas of the city by, you know, who lives there, but, you know, members of our, you know, East Asian community typically make their home in the newer parts of the city, which is the South end, which does not typically get that kind of attention. And, and then that makes me think too, the south end of the city, Ward 6, the biggest ward in the city, where it's overrepresented <laughs> or not, or rather underrepresented because of how many people are there compared to the older parts of the city as well. And this is kind of the, the, the system as we're kind of talking about at work. Yeah, it's just, um, it's interesting to see how the wards have kind of played out in terms of where the development has been, where the affordability has been, where um, there's that proximity to, to um, your, 
your basic um, you know services and stuff like that, whether it's a a grocery store or anything else, um, and where populations have kind of by default distributed themselves. Mm-hmm. And then there was you know some great studies. One one was kind of an informal study in uh, Edmonton. It wasn't really a study, but more of a commentary. And uh, there was a study, and I believe it was in Chicago. Um, and they were talking about the the amount of green spaces in higher end neighborhoods mm. proportionate to your older lower end neighborhoods. So when you're talking about the trail systems, have we made a more concerted effort to put in trails as we're designing the newer parts of the neighborhoods, but have we neglected the older parts of the neighborhoods right. um, and things like that? And then your busing tends to work around maybe your trails or maybe your accessible areas to two or three core places like okay university we know it has to get there downtown is the hub so that's where everything happens but then um when we look at some of our services when we look at um places of worship even getting a place designated or zoned Mm. um somewhere which is central to a bus stop Mm. is next very very difficult but if you start driving out behind uh, the auto mall on Woodlawn or a little further out on those country notes, you'll see a lot of uh, places of worship and, um, you know, cultural centers. Right. Because it's easier to get the zoning out there, but then they don't become accessible to your communities. You have right. to have a car to get out there. So it's just the way zoning is traditionally done. Or development is traditionally done that um, then you're, buses kind of follow that route if we're talking specifically about active like things just kind of fall into place based on what has been traditionally done so we need right. a way of reworking maybe we need a way of relooking at things um and how we how we zone and how we you know how we plan the city and it's not just on i mean thinking about the years of debate about the Sikh temple down on Clare and people saying things like it doesn't fit the character of the neighborhood, which is very not subtle coding as well. And that's, (laughs) that's on the residents and not just on the city. Uh, I just want to throw this out there because it was something I was thinking about the fact that we kind of have to go back and do this equity piece of the community plan sort of a couple of years after we finish the community plan is, is that evidence of sort of a systemic racist or, or is that sort of evidence of systemic racism in the system that, you know, we have to now actually go and do this as an addendum to the community plan? I like that you use addendum because <laughs> I, I use that term a lot. And okay. um, yeah, yeah. Um, because I like to think of it as an addendum to the, to the community plan, the original community plan. Um, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it was just... Um, a discomfort with using certain words and terminologies or being out, you know, outright or outspoken about certain things. Um, so perhaps, you you know, we need to look at the way we word and, and the way we talk and the way our, um, you know, policies and stuff are written. Right. Um, I worked on the first part of the community plan as a community member. I was quite active uh, and involved in that. And uh, we did talk a lot about equity, but um, yeah, maybe we weren't um, blunt enough and maybe we Mm. needed to be really just forthright and say, hey, this is it. Um, We need to talk about anti-Indigenous racism. We need to talk about anti-Black racism. Uh, So let's just put it out there. 
a lot of this came about because of sort of the what happened in 2020 with Black Lives Matter, what happened earlier this year with the discovery of unmarked graves in former residential school properties. Have we gotten better or have we just gotten better at like, have we gotten better at solving these problems? Are we knocking them down, as you say, or are we just sort of better at recognizing that there is a problem? I think before you fix a problem, you need to be able to acknowledge that there's a problem. And I think we've finally gotten through the phase of acknowledging that there is a problem. Um, so, I mean, they say that's 50% of the work. I don't think so. I think it's more like 20% of the work because there's a lot of work to be done. Um, but acknowledgement um, on multiple levels is, um, is a huge move forward from, you know, simply ignoring um, what was out there or simply, I think a lot of municipalities felt that this isn't their place to really, what can we do? Mm. You know, where, again, we're roads and infrastructure and things like that. And I'm not trying to pick on our, you know, any of our departments or anything like that, right. <laughs> you know, but that's typically snow removal, garbage removal. What else does the city do? Right. By law officers come to give us tickets, but you know, that's what people complain about. That's what, you know, that thing is. So, right. um, uh, this is all provincial and federal level stuff. They need to deal with, you know, indigenous community things and, and uh, you know, uh, acknowledgement of treaties and, and the truth and reconciliation and missing and murdered indigenous women. So it, what, what can the municipality process possibly do about that? And I think that attitude has finally changed. Right. We're uh, stepping up and uh, saying, that, no, there is stuff that we can do um, on, on a level of municipal government that we can take responsibility and we can make those first moves towards reconciliation. Uh, we don't have to wait for provincial and federal level governments. And that's why you're seeing a lot of hiring amongst um, all of the municipalities. Um, uh, since I've started, I've been just reaching out to all of our surrounding municipalities and, and municipalities across Southern Ontario, even um, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, where we're talking, you know, where all of the advisors are getting together, whoever's working on Indigenous initiatives, who's working on, you know, EDI, who's working on these things, how far have you guys gotten, what have you implemented, what's working, what's not working. So there's a huge community working together and um, everybody I've met has been working in these positions, like, in the last year year and a half maybe so right. I think all of the municipalities um, across across the country are really making these new moves towards getting things done right and I mean the upper levels and we could sort of pick any issue uh, whether it's infrastructure whether it's climate change um, whether it's systemic racism and we can sort of pick at the provincial and federal governments about not moving fast enough on the other hand you know if we organize a march, a Black Lives Matter march, or you know the Solidarity March that the Muslim Society had earlier this year for the the family in London who was killed, I mean that could march past the city councilor's house and they could be home. And I, I think on a lot of these issues, we're we're sort of understanding more and more that maybe there is more power in cities than we think. Yeah, I think we've definitely come to that realization that there is a lot more power than we think and, and not, you know, in cities and individuals that are working in cities and that we can make, um, make a difference. And Guelph has been, 
on the forefront of um, a lot of this work. Um, even when I was uh, had a, a great meeting with um, the Canadian UNESCO group who started the uh, Coalition for Inclusive Municipalities, and they're saying, you know, they're using Guelph as an example um, across the country to say, hey, look at the way they did their community plan and the way they're reaching wow. out. So this is fantastic. So, um, you know, use their model. <laughs> so I was like, hey, that's fantastic. You know, that's really great. But um, so Guelph is doing things, um, doing things well. We are, um, we are on on the forefront of what we're doing, and and we're we're keeping, if not keeping pace, we're we're ahead of the game in some places, mm-hmm. um, and recognize where we need to to do the work. So I think okay. that's um, I think that's huge when yeah when talking to people and and getting out to meet my counterparts um, through various Zoom and. Webex and Teams <laughs> meetings and all those things. Um, it's good to find out and to reaffirm that um, that we are doing things really well. Um, our resiliency summit was another example of that. Having Dr. Michael Unger here and just um, uh, reading through his book and talking to him and seeing that a lot of the stuff that he was talking about uh, is echoed in our community plan and in our work and is really in the the thought process of people who are doing the work. Um, that, that he's got, you know, 15 or 20 years of research, international research ba- backing him up. But, you know, we, without that research, we still were on the right path towards that whole concept of resiliency in a resilient city. So, mm-hmm. so we're doing things good here. Okay. Having said that, I would like to s- address sort of the idea of discomfort because, I couldn't really think of a Guelph example, but I mean, in the last few days, I've sort of seen people reacting to things that are going on in Waterloo region. Like there was like the, um, there, there's a group in, in Waterloo region that is trying to petition the, the region to not approve a, a big increase of the police budget. There was the incident a couple of days ago, as we're recording this of them dismantling a, a homeless encampment with like really big machines that really looked awful and some of the reaction you see online is like, oh, you know, people don't get it. People, you know, people are willing to come to sort of the the police in, in a way, in, in a form of trust that I think a lot of people of color don't necessarily bring with them too. At some point, everybody's going to have to have some uncomfortable conversations. And there's a pretty big constituency out there that just doesn't want to be uncomfortable whether it's like indigenous youth protesting at an intersection or like taking black lives matter and defund the police kind of seriously as an idea, I guess, how, how long can people put that off? You know, how is it, is it, is it it like a bandaid situation where like maybe the, the just ripping it right off is easier than like putting it off, putting it off, putting it off, I guess, you know, how, how, how long can people put off waiting to get uncomfortable with this? Yeah, uh, people are going to have to have those uncomfortable conversations. And um, when people ask me what are actionable items, I always say, you know, each individual, um, if I am speaking to a group of people, I'm pretty much speaking, you know, you're speaking to people who are already on board with whatever you have to say, right? Right. But if each one of those people go back to their situations and and take that message with them, um, each 
kind of situation that we feel um, is it worth engaging at this point? Mm. Maybe try to engage. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's you know the the crazy uncle at Christmas dinner, <laughs> whether it's a colleague at work, <laughs> you know, whether it's uh, you know whoever it it might be, we we know there's you know your neighbor may have said something. So maybe maybe those are the places we do need to engage those mm-hmm. and and make those conversations a little less uncomfortable rather than you know throwing people into the middle of the the you know the bull ring maybe we can start <laughs> you know getting those conversations those smaller conversations happening um you know one on one within your family within your colleagues within your friends um and and say you know, well, why do you say that? Or well, why is it that you would think that way or, or feel that way? You know, let me understand where you're coming from. And, and maybe those conversations become a little bit easier right. and not as difficult or uncomfortable to have. And maybe people can then understand those other points of views. Mm-hmm. Because I just, you know, a, a few weeks ago, um, as I said, there, there were those indigenous youth that shut down the intersection at Gordon and Wellington pretty major piece of real estate to hold um even for like an hour but you see the reaction on social media is like like how dare they uh people are trying to get to places people are trying to access businesses and it's like well yes that's the point of protest is to make you uncomfortable and it just seems like Mm -hmm. there's there's a cognitive dissonance happening right that people don't want it yeah the the automatic reaction is to not be uncomfortable yeah i don't want to be uncomfortable just do what you have to do but just don't put me out of my place (laughs) and unfortunately somebody's always going to be upset i think so (laughs) um it's you know you work to try to bring everybody along the best you can to really uh to to not have anybody uh, left behind or left out because I mean enacting a policy or or making a change but then again leaving an, another group of people out is right. counterproductive so you you do want everyone to come along and and everybody to be on on board with that change and and not to to realize that nothing's being taken away from them we're expanding the size of the pie we're not redistributing the pie you know like let's let's make the table bigger let's make the pie bigger or bake multiple pies or however you want to look at that analogy <laughs> but you know we're not fundamentally understanding that no we're not taking away stuff from one group to give it to another group mm-hmm. we're not trying to disadvantage somebody to give advantage to somebody the process or the point of this work and breaking down systemic barriers is to allow everybody uh, access to that um to the table you know there's a great um that poster about the with the boxes and and the three individuals looking over the the fence and then it was changed around you know from uh everybody gets a box to who needs which box and then the third poster now that goes with that is like how about we just remove the fence right (laughs) so that everyone can actually see you know we don't have to worry about distribution of boxes if you just get rid of the fence everything you know everything becomes clear right so so I think that's, I think really getting that message out is that, um, you know, that's going to be key to getting everybody together on this journey and, and to making those changes. You're talking about making the pie bigger and it makes me think of 2022 as an election year. And 
whether it's the last municipal election or even the last federal election, I mean, we do see that people of color want to be engaged. They want to be part of the political process. They, they put their name forwards as candidates. I guess the next leap is how do we help get those people elected? How do we like, I guess, what are the barriers um, to get like to have people of color sitting as city councilors? I mean, is it um, a matter of sort of like making those communities part of the political process? No, I mean, the voter turnout in municipal elections is a problem all around, like 34% Mm -hmm. voter turnout is, I mean, that's a, that's an everybody problem, but um, I guess, how do we like make those communities politically active and, and make, all of Guelph sort of, I guess, ready to take that next leap, which to actually put representation on the body politic. Yeah, so I think there's a couple of things here. First is probably um, the economics of running for office, any level of office is you have to be really pretty financially stable mm-hmm. um, or in a place to make that commitment. Uh, so either you have to have a good donor base or you have to have you have to be in money. So when you look at, you know, things like, you know, gender pay gap um, and just uh, underemployment of uh, immigrants and newcomers being not employed to to their maximum uh, ability or based on their skills, you see that that pay gap is huge. And when a person cannot commit financially, uh, having to take that time off or time away from work to do the campaigning and, and it's a full, you know, it's a 24 by seven job. Um, and especially for women um, who have the bulk of household work and caregiving. Um, So those things kind of, they need to be supported, whether it's by donations, whether the parties need to just really make more of a concerted effort provincially, federally, and municipally. Do we look at a funding pot or something to to help with that kind of gap. The other thing is um, those trust issues. Mm. Um, nobody wants to become politically active if they're not going to be trusted, if they're going to be, um, uh, you know, their, their loyalty is put in doubt. Um, you know, how loyal are you to the city because you may be right. an immigrant or maybe you were only here for five years, you know, those kind of questions. Mm. Uh, if you haven't trusted a political system to do work for you, then why would you get involved in that political system? Right. Um, so, you know, if you're talking about indigenous communities in particular, um, where, where has, has any government system worked in their favor? So why would they be involved in that bureaucracy? Why would they waste their time with that? So there's a whole issues of of trust and and community building um, to to make people um, you know want to be part of that process. Uh, another issue. This is an interesting fact where representation is less than I believe it was 15 percent. Mm-hmm. The automatic assumption that is that women or people of color will only be running to deal with specific issues that deal to gender or Mm -hmm. to people of color. Mm -hmm. So if I am a woman of color running for office, the only things I will be talking about or that will be on my agenda would be, I'll say for my specific instance, would be Islamophobia Mm. and maybe uh, health access for women. Mm. You know, and those were the only two things that I'd be concerned about. So I'm not considered an old round candidate. So why would people want to vote for me? Right. So those are assumptions that are made about people, women and people of color specifically. Uh, and so they don't get the backing or the support from the community um, many times, even if they are, you know, well-versed in um, in environment, uh, in 
engineering or, you know, any of that kind of thing. They could be coming from any kind of background, but it would be assumed that those are the only, you know, two or three key areas of focus that they would have. But to, to, to bring to bring it back to a golf example, too, it, we wouldn't even be talking about going forward. In a sense, we're talking about going back because there was once a time not too long ago where all at once Guelph had a female mayor, a female MPP, a female MP, and a female chief of police. That was the year 2000. And, and the, like those, that, like the, the couple of years uh, around the year 2000, like all of that happened. It's yeah. not, it would not be weird for to see that kind of represent. And that's just among, you know, women. I mean, we, I don't think we've had a, a person of color who's been a, a city councilor, but that kind of equity. And we've had city councils as well that have been majority women. So it's not a, it's not something we're unused to here as we've done it before. Yeah. And Guelph, I think at that time we had done it before. Um, hopefully we can do it again. Um, I guess it's just a matter of getting given, getting the women out there. And um, <laughs> another interesting fact, it takes an average of seven times for um, somebody to ask a woman to run. So a party or a group or right. um, whatever, it, it takes them seven asks before a woman will finally agree to consider running for uh, an elected position. And I would add to that too, um, and I think the studies back this up, that a woman will run for office uh, not win and then not run again, whereas a man will run, 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 run until he wins. Until he finally gets yeah. to where he wants to be. Yeah. So a, <laughs> uh, a man will apply for a job when he thinks he's sixty percent qualified, whereas a woman will wait till she's hundred percent qualified to apply right. for the same job. Yeah. So <laughs> I think it's the same <laughs> same premise here is that uh, we need to to support support the women and, and let them know that they definitely can make those changes and say, Hey, year 2000. Yeah. Year 2000. You know, everybody, we did it. <laughs> everybody thought the world was going to end and it didn't. And we had women in every position of power. <laughs> so let's do it again. Guelph. <laughs> that sounds like the start of an interesting campaign. Um, let me wrap up by just asking you, and I don't want to phrase you as like sort of an outsider to the, the community engagement process because you're certainly not you've been very active in the community for years but now you are kind of on the inside at least theoretically speaking you're not physically in city hall but you are um, a, a city of guelph staffer and do you see i guess the work differently now being on the inside than you did as like a community advocate or um have you been able to sort of comfortably make that transition and bring all these ideas that you've had into into this new position you're working on well i i had an understanding a basic understanding and and interest in um you know in the municipal system and uh, how it works but um i think today we had an interesting meeting where i realized how many layers of things that you have to take into consideration before you make a final decision. So on the outside to a person reading the newspaper or to listening to this podcast and saying, well, why can't the city just do this? Right. <laughs> um, understanding how those mechanisms work within the city 
now and how many different things need to be taken into account before we can just get this done. <laughs> uh, and realizing that each and every one of those steps is very important in the final decision or process and how those decisions are made. Right. Um, it's becoming more and more of a reality. Um, and so it's, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to, to see how that whole machine works from, from yeah, figuratively speaking from the inside. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and how yeah and how we get have to get things done so yeah it's uh there's no there's there's quite no other view than the view from the inside but we will have to leave that there and uh sarah i if people have been able to hear you're clearly a, a very busy woman with uh with cats <laughs> and dogs and kids running around so uh not to mention the important work you're doing so uh thank you for all your time and uh and uh I guess we will we will keep working through all of this. We'll keep knocking them down. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, bake a few more pies and then knock down <laughs> what needs to be knocked down. And I think we can uh, we can move this forward. I have I have faith in this community and the city, so I think we can get this work done. So thanks for having me this afternoon. Thank you. And once again, that was Sarah Saeed. You can see the latest corporate update on equity, diversity, and inclusion in the November 26, 2021 Council Information Report, and that's on the city's website. The next update will be coming up this June. The city is also in the process of updating the community plan to include a standard for the elimination of systemic racism, and you can follow along with those updates at haveyoursay.guelph.ca slash community underscore plan. You can't uh, anymore give your own feedback, but you can stay up to date with all the latest developments through that webpage. And that is it for this edition of the Guelph Politicast. The music for the Guelph Politicast comes from KPM Classics and Sid Dale. The Guelph Politicast is usually recorded at CFRU, Guelph Campus and Community Radio, out of the University of Guelph. And to learn more about CFRU, go to CFRU.ca. You can download the Guelph Politicast every Wednesday from Apple, Stitcher, Google, TuneIn, and Spotify. And when you subscribe to the Guelph Politicast channel, you will get an episode of Open Sources Guelph on Mondays and an episode of End Credits on Fridays. You can follow Guelph Politico on social media, at Guelph Politico on Twitter, and at Politico Guelph on Facebook. You can follow me personally at Adam A. Donaldson on Twitter and Instagram, and you can send me an email at adamadonaldson at gmail.com. If you'd like to help financially support the work of Guelph Politico, you can get all that information at guelphpolitico.ca slash donate. And finally, for all the latest local political news, check out guelphpolitico.ca, where there will be a new episode of the Politicast for you next week. And until then, see you next time.